Hi, Guillaume. How are you? I hope I'm saying your name right. Is that the correct pronunciation? Uh, yes, Guillaume, yes. Guillaume. How are you? you? Good. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay. We still have 10 minutes. You can just relax. I'll, I'll be inviting people, saying on Twitter, we're starting and so on. So we still okay, have... yeah. Uh, please tag me. I will, I will retreat or so. Okay. Yeah. Let me let me do that now. Hi, Kirko. How are you? I'll mute myself for a minute. What's going on, Kat? Good. Good. Meet Kiyong, our guest speaker here today. Hi. How's it going, man? Good. Good. It sounds like this is about to be. Discovering Clubhouse. Nice. Well, welcome, big dog. Uh... I'm looking at this title and this seems like very matrixy. I'm excited, man. <laughs> I'm excited too. Okay, I just tweeted it out. Uh, your account is not linked to, like your Clubhouse account is not linked to Twitter, but I found it in your email signature, your, your Twitter account. Okay, thank you. I just yeah. retweeted. Perfect. Great. Uh, welcome everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, share. Feel free to share the room with people you think would be interested in this topic. And uh, yeah, we will start in like <clears throat> around seven minutes. Um, in the meantime, I put in the chat um, Yum's um, lab website. <coughs> Sorry, I have a cold. Um, so you can, you can check out resources there um, about the research and I'll put up the the paper just in a minute. Uh, Guillaume, since you have been on Clubhouse before, do you want me to make you moderator or do you think it's like a little bit too much? I have no idea what it means. It's the first time I, I tried this app, so... Oh, it's the first... I thought you already had the app. I don't know why. No, no. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> then... then... Yeah, because then you could by accident like close the room and stuff like that. That's okay, no, no, leave it like that then. I'm okay. okay. <laughs> it's like, I don't even know why people want to be moderators. It's just, you just get to do chores actually while you're trying to listen to, that, to the presentation. Like, um, you get, like, you can monitor the chat and if people put any appropriate things there you can delete oh, it okay. and when people raise the hand you you have to kind of check the profile 
<clears throat> of the people unless you know the people okay to see if it's safe to bring them up to the stage like I can you do that. things like that uh -huh. <laughs> you know it's still social media it's i think clubhouse is pretty nice but it's still mm -hmm. you know social media so yeah it has good good and bad like everything else but no, I, I found like interesting to uh, to have like uh, a voice interaction already. Like uh, it's better than text, convey more emotions. Yeah, and the the app became big during or started during <coughs> sorry COVID. Okay. <coughs> so um, people got really connections and shared very personal things here on the app. Uh -huh. <laughs> One minute. Okay, I'm so sorry. I had to get something to drink. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, in the beginning, it was invitation only, so it was different. <coughs> yeah, different uh, mood. Yep, um, we will start in about four minutes. <clears throat> I have to get some honey or something. One minute. Hey everyone. Hi Dennis. Um, we'll start soon. I'll try to get my cough under control. I don't know why it got so bad all of a sudden. But uh, we have two minutes left and uh, feel free to share the room. <clears throat>
and we will start soon. Um, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Dumas. Uh, pleasure to have you here this evening. Uh, definitely really looking forward to the talk you're about to give. AI is um, not only a hot topic, but one that is personally um, interesting to me, obviously to everyone else who's gathered as well. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um, I think we should probably it's it's the top of the hour perhaps we should get started Is that okay um yeah um um people will continue coming in okay and i really apologize about my coughing no worry no um, worry it was not as bad the whole day um but um let me try to give a short introduction mm -hmm. uh, before we start so people get to know you but um so um, Dr. Um, Dumas um, studied um, at, he did his master's of science at the École Normale Supérieure with honors <clears throat> in and, and then at the University de Paris, um, he did his um, habilitation. Um, and accreditation to direct research. And at the Sorbonne University, he did his uh, PhD in cognitive neuroscience with, uh, again, with, with the highest honors. And uh, now he is an associate professor of computational psychiatry at the University of Montreal. <clears throat> And um, before we start, do you want to tell us a little bit about your path to where you are now? Sure. 
Um, so thank you for the invitation for us to, to discuss with you all. Um, so as you, as you introduced properly, like, uh, I did a PhD in cognitive neuroscience in Paris at the PG Salpetriere, uh, through Sorbonne University. But, um, before that I was more like, uh, in engineering and theoretical physics. Uh, my father is actually a quantum physicist, so uh, I come initially more like from the in inanimate matter, uh, but uh, with intense uh, mathematical training. And progressively, I moved to the animate and the sentient matter uh, with cognitive neuroscience and even social neuroscience. Did a postdoc in complex systems and brain sciences. Then uh, I came back to uh, France in the Institut Pasteur, where I got like a faculty position in the computational biology and the neuroscience department and recently moved to Montreal with uh, again like the two cap the computational cap and uh, more neuropsychology neuropsychiatry and neuroscience uh, cap uh, because my lab is at the CHU Saint Justine like a, a child hospital but I'm also affiliated to the Mila the Quebec AI Institute. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And do you know maybe if you could tell us um, when did you discover that you had this passion for this field of research and and doing like becoming a scientist in general? Was it huh. a problem maybe you wanted to solve or or something? you know, a class you took, a book you read, or a professor, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, I definitely got spoiled by uh, my father, who is a quantum physicist, like uh, I grew up par partially in his lab, uh, in a Faraday cages with him, uh, playing uh, petanque with uh, electrons uh, and working on condensed matter physics. Uh, he, he did his postdoc at Princeton, University working on uh, um, uh, quantum uh, microscopy. So I got really interested by uh, science uh, very young. But um, initially, before I moved to cognitive neuroscience, I was more like in engineering and uh, theoretical physics, more to go to space. And I was more like in astrophysics, cosmology, and those kind of topics. So my father was more like a, in the, the micro and I wanted to go more like on the opposite direction with the macro. But uh, I think what convinced me to move to cognitive science was actually uh, an encounter of someone who uh, advised me to check out cognitive science, uh, seeing that I was involved in a lot of uh, nonprofit and volunteering for a lot of things uh, associated with uh, development and charities and so on. And uh, this person told me like, with your uh, theoretical and uh, technical background, uh, you, de you definitely should check out cognitive science because you're gonna be more at the interface, uh, at the interface with society, while with cosmology, you may end up quite isolated. And so I started reading and uh, I encounter uh, a specific uh, scientist, uh, Francisco Varela, who was uh, 
a, neurobi a Chilean uh, neurobiologist uh, working in Paris. Uh, unfortunately, it was already dead when, when I read his books, but the, his former lab was still there. And uh, I contact them, and that's where I did my PhD, basically. Well, that's interesting that you wanted to do something like that did convince you to do something more applied. I, I get that um, because I wasn't very, I always switched between both, between very basic neuroscience and then more applied. So that's really interesting. And um, I will uh, post a link to the paper now. Mm -hmm. um, but is there maybe an interesting background story about this paper? Was it totally you know, yeah. something? Oh, yeah. Great. Then <laughs> please go ahead. Thank there you. There is like a, a seven years uh, backstory to this paper. Uh, basically, when, when I came back uh, from, um, from my postdoc in the US, uh, I end up in um, the neuroscience department of the Institut Pasteur in Paris. So for those who don't know, Institut Pasteur is really a, more like uh, about bacteria and virus and it was a hotspot during the COVID pandemic because there are a lot of people uh, into vaccines and so on working there. But um, there is a neuroscience department and uh, it was created by uh, Jean-Pierre Changeux, who is the co-author of the paper. And Jean-Pierre Changeux is like a kind of uh, monument of neurobiology in France. Uh, he, he did his PhD with uh, Jacques Monod, the Nobel Prize winner for uh, discovery of uh, um, gene regulation. Uh, and um, and Jean-Pierre did like a, a, a very in interesting career, starting with molecular biology and moving up to, to consciousness uh, from there. Um, so his first works were more on allosteri and uh, ligand and how uh, proteins actually can uh, change the, their conformation based on um, uh, binding sites and uh, um, enzymes and so on. So like really a, a fundamental molecular biology and uh, the mono weinmann changeux model was the first actual model of allosteric modulation of proteins. Uh, so it was already a, a huge contribution. But uh, interestingly, he moved from there to uh, the neuromuscular junction and, uh, um, and described the, the structure of the um, acetylcholine uh, nicot nicotinic receptor in the brain. And so like uh, moving to molecular biology to uh, neuroscience. And then after that, uh, worked on synaptic epigenesis, describing how uh, through multiplication of synapses and selective stabilization of synapses and then pruning uh, neural networks can learn in, in, in biology system. And finally, the, the, his last contribution, and nonetheless, was the, with uh, Stanislas Dehaene, De because they introduced, uh, following the philosophical work of Bernard Bars on the global workspace, they introduced the global neuronal workspace, which is one of the two or three leading uh, theory about consciousness uh, right now.
So basically, I arrive in this uh, temple of neurobiology in France and uh, doing cognitive neuroscience. I was pretty uh, <laughs> pretty enthusiastic to, to meet Jean-Pierre Changer, but I, I never met him for real. And actually, I met him at, uh, at the coffee machine without knowing it was him. And uh, he was catching me talking about mathematical models of the brain and so on. And so he asked me if I had uh, five minutes to discuss with him. I said, of course, and so on. And like seven years later, uh, well, this paper is kind of the outcome of uh, this meeting at the coffee machine that leads to uh, almost every week since then, uh, an hour meeting every week uh, with him. And so we had like a very long uh, blue sky discussion about what is the brain, what is consciousness, what are the fundamental things that are interesting and so on. Uh, and initially we didn't add any plans specifically. Um, we had no funding so far about this project. It was pure uh, intrinsic motivation and uh, exchange between Jean-Pierre and me. And after six or seven years of work, uh, actually we co-supervise uh, Constantin Volzenin, which is the first author of the paper. And Constantin is a, was a master's student and uh, actually didn't even continue in neuroscience. He's now doing a PhD in plant biology and plant genetics. But uh, he's a brilliant uh, uh, student and uh, he helped us to uh, crystallize these six, seven years of discussion, uh, ordering the different pieces of the puzzle that I've developed uh, by uh, evening and, and weekends on the side. And that's the, the actual paper that went published in, uh, in PNS uh, last, last, last month. Well, that's a great story. And I, I'm glad that you probably didn't know the, the person, like who you were talking with you would be way too inhibited maybe to so maybe yeah. it's, it was a good thing i think <laughs> yeah so, I, I quickly understood who he was though because when i when i enter in his uh, office I, I noticed immediately like uh, several leads that it was him and i i, I remember like cat, catching it and like oh okay <laughs> But it was very nice. He was, he is, uh, uh, he, he used to be apparently a tough cookie, but uh, being like emeritus, he was like really only for the fun. And we, we had like coffee and discussion. It, and in, in a way, I think uh, that's what was the, the beauty of this uh, paper and his work, that he was not like on the, the same pace and, and uh, stress or uh, needs for deadlines and so on that usually academia bring uh, in uh, typical projects. Here it was just for fun. Well, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. And if you want to now um, go ahead and talk more about the paper and your research, uh, um, and then please let us know if you're welcome questions in between or if you would prefer sure. people to wait okay perfect yeah, yeah sure. let's keep it like uh, more interactive um so now that like the the stage is set a bit uh, at the contact level so basically uh 
from what I describe of Jean-Pierre's uh, careers, he moved from scale to scale, from molecular level to uh, micro uh, circuits to macro functions. And so like um, something that really uh, connected us was this idea of uh, uh, multi-scale or multi-level modeling of cognition that we cannot think about cognition as a unitary uh, phenomenon at one level. And uh, we were pretty critical in, in the paper. We have a lot of discussion about uh, what kind of levers and uh, dichotomy have been proposed in the literature before, uh, starting with even uh, Kant or Descartes and going back to um, uh, David Marr and his uh, levels of understanding with uh, the implementation, algorithmic and computational levels. And here we wanted to uh, bring that actually maybe those levels are also uh, in the eyes of the beholder and more like uh, because we have uh, a science that is uh, separated in fields or by domain of expertise, we tend to look at uh, the elephant of uh, cognition, like uh, in the parable with the, the elephant and the blind man, uh, like trying to make sense of the thing by just having a, a chunk and trying to uh, get the wall uh, without having access to all. And, and the premise of this model was really to bring this multi-level aspect. So how we can model uh, from the, the neural scale uh, up to uh, a cognitive function and, and consciousness. And so the, the principal challenge, and remember like the first year, Jean-Pierre expected me to uh, model the, the whole visual system. Uh, it took a bit more than that, but uh, he was very pushy. It was very funny. Like, oh yeah, by, uh, by next week or in a couple of weeks, you, you're gonna have done V1, sure. Uh, so uh, I spent a hell of time to uh, dig into uh, the physiology of the visual cortex, trying to find the, the right uh, computational framework also to make those simulations. So initially, because the human brain project was starting, uh, I check out what kind of tools they were using and they were using uh, uh, Nest. Uh, and so I started with this NOR simulation technology the, with the Nest initiative uh, used by the Blue Brain project. <coughs> and sorry. And I remember like uh, scaring the L uh, out of um, the IT of uh, Institute Pasteur when I asked the, that I wanted to run these kind of models on the supercomputer at Pasteur because like uh, it was not trivial to install all that uh, kind of framework. But we did it and uh, we, we started working with Nest and we realized quickly that uh, it was nice to simulate a fixed uh, architecture and simulation, but quickly if you wanted more like uh, adaptativity and doing a cognitive tasks, uh, it will quickly uh, become very tedious to uh, to code in uh, because it's Nest is written in C, so it it become very engineering problem more than a neuroscience and computational neuroscience problem. So I moved uh, from. Uh, and from Nest to another tool called uh, Brian, uh, a spiking uh, neural network 
simulator that is very well done and in open source and Python. And taking from there, uh, I kept all the development in, in Brian until the end. So it was a very nice framework to do uh, biophysical models of spiking neural networks. And the actual code of the, the model is uh, on GitHub uh, freely available. Uh, so for those who are there, like if you want uh, to test by yourself, it's, it's, it's a bit long to run, but um, technically you can fully reproduce the, the paper results. And well, so I was, I was saying uh, initially you wanted me to, to code the visual cortex and in the end, uh, in the paper, uh, that's the, the first stage, the first level of the, of the model where we have a visual cortex based on spiking neurons uh, with a biophysical model of, of uh, uh, spike timing dependent plasticity. And uh, the model inspired by um, the work of uh, Timothy Masquerlier and uh, Simon Thorpe in Toulouse uh, was able to learn how to recognize the traditional uh, MNIST digits. So the MNIST dataset is a very common uh, dataset used in machine learning. And for the, the sake of uh, connecting with the two community, we use the MNIST as the starting point for the perceptual task and the, this perception level. And well, uh, already only at this level, we were able to reproduce an interesting emergent property of um, the network uh, that was not put explicitly in the network, but was emerging from the learning of the task of uh, perceiving and classifying uh, visual stimulus stimuli. Uh, basically, it's the figure three on the on the on the paper, and what we reproduce is that the the epigenesis, the synaptic epigenesis, of, uh, start with like a growing number of synapses, a selective uh, stabilization, and then pruning of the synapses that are unused. So that's like exactly the kind of uh, process that was described uh, in 73 uh, in the paper that uh, Jean-Pierre co-authored with uh, uh, Danchin, describing this phenomenon of synaptic epigenesis. And it was at that time uh, very theoretical. And here we reproduce that with a computational simulation of the perceptual level and the visual cortex. And another phenomenon that is pretty interesting is uh, that we have an inverted U-shape regarding uh, um, ascending neuromodulatory activity, so more like the, the spontaneous intrinsic activity of the neurons, with like, of course, if there is too much noise, the model doesn't learn and perform poorly. But actually, without spontaneous activity, it's pretty bad also. So you have a kind of uh, large interval, though, but uh, still uh, an interval where you have the right amount of noise or spontaneous intrinsic activity so that the model performs at its best. But we are only at the perceptual level, and we're going to move to the cognitive and conscious level after. So maybe. It's time for questions, if there are some. 
No. Um, yeah, let me check the chat, but for now, I don't see any questions. Okay. Uh, That's thank okay. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to move to uh, the cognitive level. So each stage of this model was also trying to delineate necessary and sufficient conditions for uh, biological mechanisms that allow to solve the task. So for the classification, we, we show that a, a key aspect is really the synaptic uh, plasticity and uh, synaptic epigenesis, which sounds trivial at first, but uh, well, uh, that was already known. But we show also emergent property of the, the network that, that were not put explicitly in the model in the first place. And then for the second stage, we, we wanted to have a, a more cognitive task where the model has to combine two pieces of information to solve the task and have an action. And for that, uh, you need reward, like you need to learn through uh, reinforcement learning. And so um, here we use a, a, a slightly different version of the uh, short-term plasticity, uh, um, so, um, synaptic uh, plasticity uh, with um, uh, short-term dependent plasticity, uh, the STDP, uh, provided by uh, uh, Ikizevich uh, in 2007 with uh, Jerry Edelman, uh, which is like a, a very nice paper where they show how to combine ABN learning and reinforcement learning into a uh, STGP synapse with dopaminergic uh, modulation. So here we keep the, the visual cortex to, for the detection of the digits, but we add uh, uh, another level of modulation of this activity through uh, excitatory neurons that are selective for different uh, stimuli. And through dopamine concentration, if uh, the, the, the model performs well or not, uh, there is a, a, a learning through synapse modulation, but integrating uh, the reward through dopamine concentration. So we show here that to, to modulate the connectivity of the neural network uh, and combining different representations, uh, the, the need of the, the credit assignment for the reward uh, go through the dopaminergic uh, system. And so that's the, the second layer, <coughs> sorry, of the model. And here we show that uh, at the performance level, the, the rate of the spontaneous intrinsic activity uh, becomes even more sensitive. So you, you the, the interval that was uh, great uh, and large for just the perceptual categorization become tighter. Uh, and so you have less room for, uh, at the biological level, have noise uh, if you want to learn uh, at, at this stage with more like a combination of different representation with long-term integration of information between brain area. Um, and so that brings us to the, the conscious level. So the cognitive level task, uh, actually, yeah, I didn't describe well the, the task, was um, 
uh, a, a typical ta task used in reinforcement learning called uh, delay conditioning. So a stimulus ap appear on, on the retina, and then you, the, the system need to wait a trigger, and then at the trigger, push the, the right button if it's the right uh, stimulus on the retina. So it's cl classical uh, delay conditioning. So the system should not push when the stimulus is on. It should wait for the, the it, it should wait for the, the trigger. And for the conscious task, um, we choose delay conditioning because uh, a, a very slight change of the delay conditioning is called the, the trace conditioning and is used to uh, challenge um, conscious uh, tasks. And in the trace conditioning, the main difference is that the stimulus uh, go away and the, the system needs to maintain in a working memory uh, the, 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 the representation of the stimulus until the trigger arrive. So here, when the trigger are, uh, happen, there is no more perceptual stimulation on the system. The, st the system has to remind what was the, the stimulus that was flashed on and push the right button when the trigger happened. So it sounds like pretty simple, but uh, <coughs> that's the, the simplest task you can think about if you want to probe uh, uh, consciousness uh, in, in an experimental way. And so at this level, the necessary uh, biological mechanism that appeared was, uh, so we had already uh, the synaptic plasticity and ABN learning. We had dopamine and reinforcement learning. Uh, what is critical for this third stage is actually uh, interneurons and the ability to inhibit uh, the, the wrong representations and maintain uh, the, the representation that was perceived before the stimulus goes away. And uh, with the, the right um, balance of uh, interneurons, so inhibitory neuron and excitatory neuron, the model learn uh, through time, through experience, uh, to solve the task. And interestingly, for this uh, last stage of the, the model, we have like a, what is for, to me my favorite results of the paper, uh, that the, the best performance of the model for this conscious task is 20% interneuron and 12 Hertz intrinsic activity, which is kind of resonating with experimental results in neuroscience since like, uh, the 20% to 40 to 80% uh, excitatory um, neuron ratio is exactly what we observe in, in the brain. And the 12 Hertz uh, intrinsic activity uh, for all the electrophysiologists uh, in the audience uh, is actually the rhythm of the alpha rhythm, the most pervasive uh, oscillatory activity in the, in the brain. So that's a quite a, a cool thing when your model give you back like a two canonical uh, empirical facts that were not explicitly put in the model in the first place. It's purely a emergent property 
from the learning of the task and the performance on the task. And so, yeah, the, the overall thing uh, show that uh, there are like uh, some mechanisms at the biological levels that seems quite uh, critical for solving a high level cognitive task and conscious tasks. And interestingly, those, um, those mechanisms are not at all um, exploited by current uh, AI architecture. I mean, that's like a, a very um, funny observation, but in the end, uh, while artificial intelligence borrow a lot of inspiration from neuroscience in the early stage, and even uh, with the deep learning at some level, uh, since then, like the the inspiration was pretty superficial. I mean, we can think about uh, attention is all you need and uh, transformers, but still, it's really a another way of looking at attention from a mathematical standpoint that is not necessarily the same as attention uh, and how it's implemented in the brain. Here we show that. Uh, typically, spontaneous intrinsic activity uh, and uh, interneurons, so uh, and neurotransmitters systems like dopamine, could be like uh, different types of mechanisms that could be potentially of use to modify new generation of algorithm in AI. And so that's what we are working on. Uh, uh, it, at Mila, at the, at the Quebec AI Institute, where, uh, that was founded by uh, Joshua Benjo, uh, one of the godfather of deep learning, and uh, Joshua is really uh, uh, sensitive to this connection between uh, AI and no neuroscience. And we have a, a whole task force uh, around uh, neuro AI, so neuro-inspired artificial intelligence. And some are more from the AI domain, trying to get inspiration from uh, discussion with neuroscientists. Some are more like from the neuroscience side on the, on the beginning and computational neuroscience and try to go more on the AI uh, side. But uh, that's where we are. And like, for instance, this paper is more like a computational neuroscience paper that's steer towards the, the AI side of the thing. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. Um, this is, um, I found this was a really interesting um, research and um, it's really wonderful what, you know, how you described it. And um, yeah, I want to ask if people have questions, please flash your microphones, uh, raise your hands and uh, we will go from here. Yeah, Denise, thank you, go ahead. That is so fascinating, the entire talk. I was really curious about how you explain this emergent property that it just, uh, you didn't give it the inputs, but it gave you the output. How, how do we explain that? Uh, just in case you, you muted, Guillaume. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so when we are dealing with these uh, neural networks, whether they are biological or artificial, 
are here biophysically uh, simulated, uh, we are in a way using here the computer to simulate processes that uh, escape our rationality and our uh, individual computational ability as a human. Like a, uh, it's a, a philosopher, uh, Emmanuel Delanda, that, that speak in the, the age of, re, uh, of simulation, how uh, digital simulation become kind of an extension of our way of uh, being rational about the world and, and analyzing uh, facts. And here, through simulation, we are able to render complex, um, complex systems and complex emergent properties that are derived from the simple interaction of the different components, but through the massive interaction of those little components become untractable at the analytical level. And so those uh, imagined properties actually are, at first, this kind of uh, complex systems um, phenomena, like uh, the, the most famous are, for instance, uh, the movement of murmuration of, of birds, for instance, like each bird individually has a very simple behavior and give rise to this kind of uh, gigantic cloud that seems to have a, its own uh, behavior on its own, or like a, you can think about a, a hunt colony, for instance, etc. Well, like the, the interaction of simple entities give rise to complex uh, behavior. And here, our simple entities are neurons, and through simple interaction with uh, synaptic plasticity and modulation, it gives rise to cognitive abilities and more complex behavior that could be, could not be uh, traced back to the uh, level of the individual neurons and need this uh, emergence at the complex system level to, to happen. <coughs> now, I was saying that through simulation, we have access to that, and uh, because it's analytically untractable, uh, it's partially true because uh, for certain aspects of those emergent properties, uh, some people manage afterwards uh, in complex systems and in theoretical physics, statistical physics, to find ways to uh, model those phenomena after their observation. So the, the point is that uh, digital simulation is a way to uncover them and to, to probe the, the key parameters and the necessary parameters to allow those uh, phenomena to emerge. But uh, then maybe the, the work is just starting because then you need to really understand how to connect those different uh, factors to the observed behavior. And so in the case of, for instance, uh, I mentioned the 20% to 80% uh, inhibitory excitatory ratio uh, that emerged. Um, so it's called uh, a balanced state uh, network. It's something that was uh, well described in a, in a paper in Science in 2011 by uh, uh, Vogels and colleagues. And you can now find uh, analytical ways to understand why it converged on those uh, pro proportions. And 
uh, yeah, I hope like for instance, in, in our case, the 12 Earths spontaneous intrinsic activity that for me was uh, uh, really resonating at, with the alpha rhythm in the brain that is very concerned. I'm coming from EG in my, during my PG and so on. So I was like, oh, 12 Earths, that's like, that's quite kind of cool. But now we, the, the work is starting. So like, what are the parameters that leads to these 12 Earths? Is it like, for instance, the, the time constant of the neurons that we put in the model? So if I change, for instance, the NMDA time constant or the AMPA time constant in the model, which leads to higher or lower sweet spot for the, the, the intrinsic frequency, those are like the kind of thing we can uh, start to, to dig in after observing uh, through the simulation those uh, emergent properties. Fascinating. I had one other question. How long was this simulation run? So that's a, a good question. Uh, um, I, I didn't count uh, because I had so many times to rerun it and, and so on. But uh, I think on the, a supercomputer uh, in France, it was running for, I think, two or three weeks. Uh, in Canada, I had like access to even more computing uh, here. It was running roughly in three days on the Quebec uh, Beluga supercomputers. Yeah. And then did the emerging properties become apparent immediately or were they towards the end of the simulation or at what point? Uh, so uh, that depends on which property we're talking about. So like, for instance, uh, in the case of the, uh, the property of solving the task per se, uh, interestingly, the, the delay conditioning, so the, the simple cognitive task was taking about, uh, so our simulation were 150 seconds. Uh, yeah, I would say like, uh, one sixth of the overall simulation. So, so on a week, uh, if if you have a, a week of calculation after the first day, the the model would grok the the cognitive task of uh, 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 delay conditioning, while for the the conscious task for the trace conditioning, you would need like uh, five to six days. So it, it took way longer in that case to learn the credit assignment because the, the, the task itself, the stimulus has disappeared when you have to push the button. And so the learning take way more time. But uh, so that's like more like emergent properties at the level of one network. <coughs> the other emergent property that I was talking about was more like the, the sweet spot at uh, 12 Hertz and 80% of uh, excitatory inhibitory ratio. And this is like take uh, way more time because here what we do is we change for um, every set of parameters. We were, we rerun a wall network again from scratch with like 10% of, of uh, inhibitory neuron, 20% of inhibitory neuron, 30%, etc., etc. And for each ratio of inhibitory and uh, excitatory neuron, we also change the rate 
of the spontaneous intrinsic activity, basically the, the um, ascending acetylcholine uh, neuromodulatory activity. And we go like with no noise at all, one hertz, two, two hertz, and so on, up to 20 hertz. <coughs> Sorry. And so that's figure 7A on the paper. And this figure, uh, for instance, this is more like uh, uh, several months of calculation because every little square is in fact uh, the average of our uh, multiple realization of this uh, combination of parameters. So we, we train multiple networks with similar range of parameters and, and look at their behavior, how they are good at learning the task, etc. Wow, so it's variable. I mean, that's, uh, that is definitely about the answer I expected, but thank you for those details. Um, who else would like to ask questions? Just to follow up, is it, um, so um, is it learning then faster than next tasks or can it uh, learn more complex tasks after what? Ah, yeah, uh, that's, that's a very good question. So actually, uh, this, this multiple level of development uh, were there also to make a point about how the brain develops compared to artificial neural network develops. So when uh, a baby develops, it learns first a uh, very low level, um, like typically visual system um, uh, statistical regularity of the environment and there are like critical periods uh, that modulate the plasticity so like you don't learn uh, every time during your adulthood afterwards the statistical regularity of your uh, orientation columns in your visual cortex those things are really settled early in life and so here in the, in the model that's exactly also what we put it's like you first learn the, the basic statistical regularity at the visual level, then to trace conditioning, the two delay conditioning, you learn to combine information from the cue and those uh, stimuli, stimuli. And for the trace conditioning, you need to have already the, the learn this uh, visual classification to be able to do more complex conscious tasks. So you can't learn everything simultaneously. And uh, in the case of uh, artificial neural network, uh, actually that's what's uh, called curriculum learning. So uh, people realized also that uh, by training artificial neural network with like simple tasks initially and then uh, fine tuning the learning, was leading to better results. So like, for instance, if you have a, a large scale uh, model, like for instance, now we have uh, the, <coughs> sorry, stable diffusion model, for instance, the open source uh, um, diffusion model generating images from uh, text prompt. Well, this gigantic model can be then fine tuned afterwards to do subtask that he was not initially trained for because the model itself contained a lot of knowledge about uh, images and text that were already fed in uh, earlier early on in his uh, learning 
And so um, the, the idea with what's called continuous learning is that you will reuse uh, aspects of uh, those past experience to learn more easily new tasks. The, the problem, and that's something that is very uh, prevalent in uh, AI, is the catastrophic forgetting and the fact that if you learn too much something new, you may erase or unlearn what you learn in, in the first place. And so typically something that we can take inspiration from the human brain, maybe this critical period. So like uh, in the same way that uh, people are fine tuning large scale models that are already pre-trained, maybe we can also think about curriculum learning with uh, critical periods where like certain subtypes of layers are more or less plastic over time during the, the training. I'm sure actually empirically, uh, AI scientists may even do sometimes this kind of techniques, but what, what's interesting is how the brain has converged on, on this kind of things as well. What would be the optimal way of doing this for artificial neural networks? <coughs> and to date, this is far from being solved. And uh, another aspect also that I want to add is like uh, here we have a, a pretty uh, linear uh, increase of complexity of the tasks, uh, but uh, in the ideal world, and that's where we're going to head afterwards, um, tasks are associated with different modalities, with different combination of uh, sub-routine or sub-functions. And so in that case, and that's already in the theory of the global neural workspace, you have multiple unconscious subprocessors that are present in the brain, and you need to train those subconscious modules to allow them later on through consciousness to communicate and to be combined for more com com complicated tasks. And so at Mila, the, there is like a recently, um, uh, the PhD defense was amazing, actually. Uh, Anirud Goyal was a um, PhD candidate, uh, PhD uh, student of uh, Yosha Bengio, uh, proposed uh, architectures inspired by those modules called uh, REAMs, recurrent independent modules in deep learning, and show that by having such kind of sub-modules that you train depending on the task, give you more flexibility and, uh, and generalizability to new tasks afterwards. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I have more questions, but I want to give Serena and Kiko and Nas also opportunity. And then in the end, I'll ask more. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I had a couple questions uh, about the system performance, but then also I wanted to appreciate the scale of the system simulation itself. Um, and then I'm sorry, I, I, I arrived late. So some of the initial details of the model, I, I was just trying to skim through the paper, but um, I understand it's a continuous learning. I'm curious in um, the performance as it learned to classify different numbers um, in a sense of uh, rather than static images, did you look at uh, presenting, you know, uh, 
not so much real-time video, of course, but uh, dynamically changing visual inputs, morphing one number into the next, and and looking at the dynamic response of the system as it as it realized that the numbers have changed and it began to recognize, you know, a different class. Uh, so no, we, we I, I I never uh, tried that. Actually, uh, that's uh something i i would love to uh move on and uh when you say like a video you know, <laughs> my, my my dream would be to have that model running in real time yeah yeah, yeah. uh but the the way it was structured so basically when i uh programmed the early uh, visual system i actually add for each uh to optimize the the speed of the simulation uh i i tricked the first part of the the visual system and the LGN typically, the the lateral geniculus, uh, by uh, converting every pictures into spike trains that would arrive in the visual cortex. So the the early stage of the the system is the is not a a, a raw picture, but I already pre-processed all the pictures of all the digits of MNIST and add the spike trains ready to be uh, fed in the system. I see. So uh, that drastically uh, increased the speed of the simulations compared to uh, having to calculate every time the, the digits and the translation in, in spikes. But uh, clearly, yeah, having a, a dynamical LGN uh, program in C, for instance, or something like super fast would be great because uh, the way I did it was with uh, with Brian uh, in Python, and for each um, pictures, it was taking actually a, a long time to have like a proper uh, waves of spikes uh, simulated. Mm -hmm. um, for so you mentioned supercomputer time. Could you give me a a, a, a feel for wall clock per simulation second, uh, wall clock time per simulation time? And uh, what kind of uh, footprint on the, uh, in terms of nodes? What what level of computational yeah. demands? So actually, it was not that heavy on on RAM and and and, um, and CPU. The the massive uh, time was especially uh, uh, caused by the amount of parameters to to test and the the number of simulation with uh, different. Uh, initial conditions. I would say that uh, a full simulation of uh, the model would run on, on a laptop in about an hour with like a modern laptop, but and it's, how only, it's only one one run. And so- and How much simulation time would that hour take or compute? Uh, it's uh, about 150 seconds. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the time uh, I think I was at the microseconds for the the precision in time. I see. Okay. But the the clearly also like something that was very uh, uh, time consuming in a way that uh, may not be necessary in the end, but I I had to do that for uh, for the sake of the science was that I, I was storing on top all the time series of the weights. I mean, that's that's what takes forever also to 
at the access disk and so on. Oh, you were I.O. bound. Yeah, so I was storing the evolution of the network itself. So that's mm -hmm. like some super uh, costly uh, access disk that may have also uh, impaired the speed. So clearly, the code is on the GitHub. You, you can even uh, try it. Uh, honestly, on, on the laptop, it, it runs nicely, actually. Um, for, for doing the, the figure 7a, it would take way more time because there's like such a combinatory of parameters and for each uh, set of parameters, multiple simulation. <coughs> but uh, if you take already the 12 Hertz, 80% uh, excitatory neurons, so the sweet spot where the performance is, uh, it should be uh, able to run that on even a, a decent single machine. And have you thought about um, uh, other types of hardware platforms, GPUs, TPUs, any neuromorphic? Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a very good question. Like, uh, so that was clearly one of the bottleneck to have to go through this very long simulation each time I wanted to, to do a plot and to test something and so on. Um, so I tried when I moved to Montreal and discovering all the AI community, uh, some other implementation for spike neurons using PyTorch that uh, would maybe uh, take way more advantage of uh, GPUs because uh, in mm -hmm. the case of uh, uh, Brian, it's more like a, a just-in-time compilation than GPU optimization. So the code was uh, transcoded in, in C and executed in C uh, at the back end, but it was still not uh, taking advantage from modern uh, hardware like GPUs. I, I'm not sure even Brian's uh, development team would go in, in that because it's a huge engineering effort, I think, to change their code base to a GPU friendly uh, execution. But so there are like a uh, framework in PyTorch for doing a spike uh, simulation. Mm -hmm. <coughs> the problem is that those frameworks are more uh, also bare metal spike and uh, they don't allow like uh, Nest or Brian to implement fine grain biophysical simulation of uh, NMDA receptors, uh, time constant or dopaminergic concentration and so on. This is not like done for this kind of uh, fine-grained biophysical modeling. So I don't know, there's like a missing uh, niche, I would say, uh, regarding this kind of uh, uh, biophysical models on GPUs. Maybe if, if you heard about frameworks that do that, uh, I would be really interested to test that because uh, that's clearly a bottleneck for those very uh, time-consuming um, simulation. And on top here, we're looking at um, uh, models with a, a thousand neurons. I mean, ultimately, my dream would be to 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 really scale up and and go big. But clearly, also uh, the the Python um, framework, Brian. I don't think it's done. To, to run uh, like uh, billions of neurons uh, if we go completely uh, full, uh, full scale. And uh, I'm sure like with what is done right now in AI uh, with uh, model sharding and uh, model parallelism, 
uh, in uh, GPUs, uh, if there were like as much effort that is put on PyTorch and TensorFlow with a biophysical uh, mindset, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. It's a very interesting direction to go in. Um, I'll certainly um, look at the details of your model because it's a, you know, it's a current fascination and in a direction I'm interested in. Um, mm -hmm. I'll follow up. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. I would say that, for instance, also something that uh, is very uh, underexplored in uh, machine learning that is so pervasive in um, in the brain is typically oscillations. And uh, there is like uh, a lot of things that may be dependent on oscillatory activity in the brain, such as like time perception. And in my case, I study a lot uh, social cognition and the way we coordinate in time with others. And typically, I think that maybe uh, ultimately a, a limitation of the not necessarily the hardware, but the, the way we are thinking about uh, machine learning. And uh, I, I remember having like huge debates uh, about the um, implementation level of David Marr with the algorithmic and computation. And hardcore computer scientists were like, oscillation is just like a, a mechanistic implementation detail. We don't need that. We can just do as, as well uh, at the computational and uh, algorithmic level with uh, um, uh, formal uh, neur neurons. And uh, I don't think it's true. I, I, I think oscillations are something that we uh, may gain a lot of uh, if we manage to integrate that in, in machine learning. But I fully agree. And um, I was going to let it go, but now I can't help it after that comment. <laughs> Um, have you have you thought about extending the model to uh, astrocytes as well to capture their yeah. um, their ability to drive neural synchrony? You know, you yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's a that's a very very good point. Actually, we we thought about it uh, at the theoretical level. So we have a a paper with my former uh, postdoc advisor uh, Scott Kelso in uh, neural networks for the twenty fifth. Uh, anniversary where we talked and at the time it was 2013 and we talked especially about the the tripartite synapse and the role of astrocytes being quite under uh, appreciated by the the community and um yeah no i i think like uh, there's almost nothing that has been done on that and that was partially one thing that uh, disappointed me for instance with a large effort like the, the human brain project to uh, ignore like 80% uh, of the cells that are in the brain basically uh, in their simulation of the cortical um, column. It's like uh, having astrocytes, uh, not having astrocytes to me it's, it's, it was shocking. I understand also that you can't simulate everything, but uh, clearly the, the role of astrocytes has been downplayed and uh, on the same level, uh, I think, like for instance, uh, even uh, brain structure like the cerebellum had suffered from the similar kind of uh, down rating. So, like uh, recently, we we show that uh, the cerebellum may have a, a more 
uh, interesting role in sensory motor integration in the social context. And I think a lot of people uh, have stayed with in mind that the cerebellum was just a, a motor control thing. And it was like a very uh, uninteresting for understanding eye level cognition. But same thing, I think uh, we are maybe uh, far from understanding the exact role of cerebellum and the highly parallelized uh, architecture of cerebellum uh, would say if, if we take metaphorically that the, the cortex would be more like a CPU, I, I tend to see, for instance, the cerebellum more like a, a GPU that is able to process large tensor of information in parallel. So yeah, there are a lot of neural mechanisms, neural structure that historically through the, the, the the consensus of expertise and the, the play of, of sociology of science uh, have not reached computer scientists and AI community, but would clearly maybe be uh, super useful to think a new generation of uh, AI algorithm. Well, I certainly, uh, it's, an, it's a current pursuit to get to how we might include an astrocyte neuron dialogue in, in um, in recent advances from neuroscience in, into the models, it does mm -hmm. seem like we need to improve the model of dendrites as a as a prerequisite to get to the astrocytes. Would you, would you mm -hmm. say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, clearly, the the neuron is far from the the McCulloch and Pitts uh, and the perceptron, <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. now we now we are realizing how. The, the devil is in the detail and clearly like uh, calcium waves, dendritic spines formation, uh, gradients uh, can be like actually uh, analog computation, physical computations that have a, a big role ultimately uh, in, uh, in the brain. I mean, even uh, the early work of uh, Christophe Kaur and uh, uh, people like uh, Henri Marcram before they they went to more larger microscopic thing. I mean, Christophe Corr is still also in the micro with the Allen Brain uh, Institute, but the, their early work were on on, on synaptic uh, computation and dendritic computations. And same thing, like uh, yeah, there there may be a lot of things to to do on that. Like recently, also I saw. Uh, um, uh, raising interest into uh, having neurotransmitters, like um, how we can think about neurotransmitters in uh, artificial neural networks. I mean, that could be a, a wonderful way of multiplexing information and contextualizing information in a different way than uh, it was uh, taught originally. Yeah, if I, oh, go ahead. Sabrina. Oh, I was just going to say, Katarina, we were just talking about some of your findings and some of your work about how the amygdala inputs tend to go to the branches of the dendrites, whereas the cortex, um, not inputs, outputs, go to the boutons of the, and how that, uh, how, how that modulates information in a very different way. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so I was looking for emotional priming, basically, um, and, and um, I found that um, the amygdala inputs to the striatal. <coughs> I'm so sorry. 
I don't know what it's about the English language. I was just talking with my son in my language, and I was trying. Um, <laughs> You're allergic <laughs> to English. Now. <laughs> Some sound wave that triggers the cough. Um, yeah. So the the inputs from the amygdala are not are relatively sparse compared to the sensory motor cortex. But when I um, when I paired them with the sensory motor cortex and other ones, they were kind of the most amplifying input to evoke like repetitive behavior. So then I looked with the two photon and I found that uh, with calcium imaging that they mostly target <clears throat> the wires between the boutons and then the sensory motor cortex, just the boutons, <coughs> which makes like the perfect amplifier because I was interested in looking at the emotional priming part of OCD, basically. It's a little bit overstated as a scientist. I shouldn't frame it that way, but for the public, it's what I was looking for. Sorry to put you on the spot. I knew you were coughing. But no, um, um, Guillaume, it's a fascinating direction, and I'm very interested in, and I think we need you know, it simultaneously to increase the biophysical realism and fidelity of the models, um, but also figure out how to target, you know, the advances in the hardware platforms and and develop models so that we can scale these things up because they are going to get very computationally demanding. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I totally agree. Like about the the spirit or so of the paper was to lead at the necessary and sufficient mechanisms. So like. The, the goal was actually not to do the human brain project. We didn't want it to simulate everything. We just wanted to simulate just enough to have this emergent property to appear and solve the tasks and to say to uh, the AI more community, look, it's not like about we're going to just reproduce exactly the brain in a vat and we, we're going to have like a, a uh, AI that become conscious and so on, but we don't have a clue why. Uh, the the concept of making these computational models is also that we can look at the necessary, sufficient, uh, little mechanisms that biology provides, and maybe it could lead to uh, inspiration for uh, computational implementation for AI. And then uh, at the uh, hardware level, because indeed we, we didn't talk too much about the neuromorphic aspects, but clearly, yeah, like uh, I, I've discussed with a physicist working on um, uh, light-based uh, simulation of oscillator, oscillatory networks, for instance. So the if you manage to have the the matter uh, computing physically what you want instead of having to to deal with transistors and computation to compute this information. So basically like uh, physical computing, uh, that's even better. And uh, they, they are like uh, uh, things that, that lead in this direction. Um, I remember uh, I mentioned at, at the beginning uh, uh, that my, my father was uh, working in a 
in Princeton in his postdoc for uh, uh, tunnel microscopy, and one of his colleagues was working on laser and uh, optic com computing. Well, uh, I mean, there is a, a whole development of a supercomputer using uh, light technology in uh, in Europe right now with a, a lion. Um, well, that's that's really stimulating because it showed that uh, maybe uh, there are other paths to computing and that could be uh, transformative for AI. So of course, there is like always the the quantum computing things that has been developed over uh, a long time. But there are other aspects like um, optic computing uh, or, um, yeah. So I'm very uh, enthusiastic about maybe even uh, more energy saving solutions that could in the end uh, be faster than just uh, classical transistors based uh, computers. Well, certainly, if there's going to be edge computing, you know, real-time applications for these models, we do have to factor that into our, you know, how they're represented and, you know, do we cook them down to FPGAs or or some type of neuromorphic arch architecture? Um, I, I won't put Katarina on the spot again, but she, she asked questions about in increasing the learning phase of the... Um, of the of the system uh, in terms of the s phase and uh, um, so that there could be more more generality i believe is that yeah the the, the kind of uh, critical periods of learning and uh how it mm -hmm. to more generalization right right yeah so well uh, as i say like that's how uh learning happen in biology for nervous systems, not even only in, in humans. What's uh, very particular in humans, though, is that uh, those critical periods are particularly uh, extended compared to other uh, mammals and primates. The phenomenon uh, uh, known as uh, neotenia. So the, the fact that actually compared to uh, a cat, uh, our density of synapse uh, is, uh, and the way uh, the, the system go through the cycle of uh, growth, variability, maximal variability and selective st stabilization of synapse, it's way slower in humans than in cats or macaque, for instance. And so it leads way more time for the system to also integrate and uh, be uh, hand-culturated, so to say. and. Uh, that, that leads actually to the the, the more perspective uh, of uh, of my work, which is that uh, I'm, I'm working a lot on on social neuroscience and how uh, actually our brains are shaped by our social interaction with others, and uh, I think that for reaching also human level um, cognitive ability, we don't only need to understand uh, biological mechanisms, but also have a social embodiment of the models. And that's also another big uh, blank spot for AI. I mean, there's the multi-agent reinforcement learning uh, subgroup of AI working on multi-agent and so on, but it's kind of marginal compared to the, the whole AI crowd. And so 
Up next, I, I would love to continue this biophysical re realism, but combine with, on top, an embodiment of those models uh, through video games or simulated virtual worlds, uh, so that like they have a, a experience of the the world that is um, social and with other con specifics. That's really fascinating because um, in terms of learning by example and teaching, um, you know, mo models teaching other models uh, what they've learned, and um, it's a very fascinating aspect to have the, so the social and cultural dimensions of it. Um, I'll definitely follow up with you. Kirko or Nas, do you have any questions? Yeah, I have a quick question. Uh, thank you, Serena. Thank you, Katrina. Speaking of uh, artificial intelligence, how far are we using artificial intelligence in um, cognitive enhancement? And can it be achieved anytime soon? Whether in well, terms of uh, cognition or stimulation? Um, okay, so in, in terms of cognitive enhancement, so... Um, you mean, for instance, uh, using AI as a kind of extension of our natural brain? Yes, that, uh, not in a state, <coughs> in complement of our natural brain. Enhancement. Sure, sure, sure. I see it. Well, I, I think it's already happening. I mean, it's not literally connected uh, with wires to our natural brains. But uh, through technology, we have drastically altered our cognitive ability. And I mean, without my smartphone or my laptop, uh, I would consider my cognitive abilities drastically uh, reduced compared to what I can achieve being uh, symbiotically and synergetically uh, combined with those artifacts. So uh, it, I see this already happening and changing our even our biology and our uh, way of thinking. So like, uh, there is like um, this French philosopher, um, Michel Serre was saying that kids nowadays, they don't, people are complaining that they are uh, not knowing any more things, or like uh, really a, a very caricatural uh, vision. But the, the fact is that we don't, learn uh, the same thing. We don't learn the thing, we don't how to access to the thing. So in the world where you have access to uh, Google, Wikipedia and those tools, it's actually smarter to know how to get the information than to learn by art all the information. And it creates a new form of cognition in a way. So despite not being like uh, microchips uh, sealed in our skull, we are already kind of uh, altered and extended by those cognitive uh, gadgets, these cognitive uh, tools. And <coughs> with AI now, it expands even more like those uh, abilities. So for instance, uh, I'm not a English native speaker. So, uh, being a scientist, I have to uh, to write all my communication in English and so on. And now with AI, there's like tons of tools to help you 
to deal with grammatical stuff that are kind of uh, a burden for someone that is not a native speaker. And I mean, that's already like uh, amazing. That's I I'm AI and ENF for uh, English grammar, grammar, for instance. Uh, and some artists now are AI enhanced uh, in their ability to generate amazing uh, pictures through uh, AI generative models. I don't think it will kill art at all, but it will steer it to a next level of creativity that's going to be more meta and more uh, about how to use those tools to go beyond uh, what has been done until now. Um, so I think your question would lead more to uh, when it's going to be truly symbiotic and uh, maybe uh, in invasive. And I, I don't know for that, uh, for that case. Like, uh, I don't know until when people will be okay to have uh, their autonomy uh, physically uh, diluted with uh, uh, artifacts. Uh, I can see that it's a, a matter of uh, individual preferences. Some people are already all for getting implants with the neural implant and so on. The, the foot in the door is ready to uh, argue that it's for more like disabled people, but ultimately uh, you will always end up with people who are going to use that for more like enhancement than just uh, reparations of uh, lost functions. So this more um, subject to ethical consideration and uh, individual preferences. But honestly, uh, if we leave this kind of uh, invasiveness aspect, I think we are already there. I had a question from an audience member that asked in the back channel to ask you this about the awareness of self and um, or self-awareness in AI, do you think that um, this way of modeling can model that <laughs> at some point or do you think it's crucial in any way? Sorry, I, I, I didn't hear well the question. Oh, um, awareness of self or self-awareness. Ah, okay. In... Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, that's that's a that's a tough one, and I think in our paper we allude to that because clearly those days there is a huge enthusiasm about AGI, so artificial general intelligence, so more the idea of a, a, a human level and even beyond human level intelligence for solving different tasks. But uh, what the recent large scale models have told us is that. You don't need necessarily consciousness to be um, better than humans at certain tasks. So the question of artificial consciousness is different, I think, from the question of uh, general intelligence. And the question of consciousness and artificial self uh, is uh, a more uh, scientifically uh, interesting cookie than technologically for now, I think, because uh, indeed, uh, from an engineering point of view, not a lot of people see consciousness as a very uh, important 
function to solve those different tasks. So for <coughs> for AlphaGo to to beat Cerdol, uh, our uh, world champion, to go, uh, it was not necessary to have con self and and consciousness for uh, stable diffusion to generate those crazy fantasy pictures doesn't need to have consciousness neither. But uh, I would say that actually uh, having a sense of self and consciousness is clearly uh, a, a key to uh, the ability of filtering what is relevant or not and to have uh, a, a better learning of world models, like the, the way of interpreting the world and forming an understanding of the world. And so ultimately, uh, I, I'm pretty confident that the question of artificial consciousness would become more and more uh, appealing to AI people and engineering and not just like uh, sci-fi and uh, cognitive scientists. <laughs> yeah, would it, um, would it make AI safer? Um, I read the book Artificial You by Susan Schneider and okay. she claims, like she doesn't really claim, but she describes that it would make it maybe uh, safer because they can empathize with us or they have more something in common with us. So even wow. if they become more intelligent, they would like have more kind of a, uh -huh. we have something in common. So we would. Yeah. And the other thing is also for security, wouldn't like a self-awareness also imply that they would recognize this is me and this may be a virus. Uh -huh. Don't let it in type of thing. Like, could you combine it with artificial immune system to have like a self-learning of, um, you know, viral attacks like we see now, you know, in Dolagia. everywhere, all that. Yeah. And also in the cyber world, right? We have ah, okay. Cyber I see, attacks I see. and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's like uh, at the, at the frontiers. Uh, well, um, why not? I, I would say like, uh, sadly, we have seen in our own history that having a consciousness and self-awareness doesn't prevent uh, mass murdering and uh, tragic uh, genocide and stuff like that. So clearly compassion and empathy uh, should be on, on the to-do list uh, with consciousness on, on those. Uh, and that's why also I'm pretty interested in social cognition and the role of cooperation and not seeing like AI as an individualistic uh, agent that is optimizing for a goal. Because in that case, the, the current way of looking at uh, AI would lead to some, some uh, agents that are totally uh, not empathic, like optimizing only its own goal and disregarding uh, completely uh, the goal and the existence of others. So <coughs> the, the self consciousness should goes with, uh, other consciousness. And, uh, the good news on that is that, uh, I'm pretty sympathetic to the theory of, uh, Michael Graziano that actually our self consciousness is connected to our ability to have other consciousness. Like, uh, that's, 
even the reverse, evolutionary speaking, that our brain developed to make sense of others and gave a, a huge evolutionary advantage to deal with other behavior and to predict them. And it's by over developing these aspects that we manage to then apply the same neural machinery to our own behavior and create like a, a loop that created a self. And so in, in this uh, theory, so it's, it's associated with the attention schema theory, uh, basically, the sense of self is associated with our sense of distinguishing also other behavior from other people. Yeah, I agree. And regarding the empathy, and there's a really good cipher book. Um, the second one came out, it's originally in German, but it came out in English quality land. I can only recommend. It's very funny and very educational. I recommended it a bunch of times for probably people that come here for a while, they heard about it. it. You know, it's a world where robots are more empathetic towards humans than humans themselves. You have to like kiss your iPad to make a purchase. <laughs> so you like, like your robots more. Okay. It's, it's a very funny story. A guy gets okay. from a company like Amazon something delivered. Uh -huh. um, the whole land is basically based on that the AI is always right and they already know what you want before you know it. So you get dropped in the moment you want it, you get dropped uh, by a drone, the product. Wow. And he got the product that he didn't want, uh, a pink dolphin dildo. <laughs> and he goes to the company and says, I didn't want this. And this is kind of destroying the whole concept of society and it's a very funny story it's like <laughs> it's very funny and very educational so i i shared the link in the chat just because yeah. of empathy i thought of it thank you <laughs> kiko you wanted to ask and then probably we'll let you go because we are both coughing here the whole time so I sorry yeah <laughs> I, I got the same bug apparently <laughs> it's horrible i don't know why tonight it started really bad okay kiko go ahead Sweet. Great talk, man. Um, so, how do you guys uh, kind of bring up that talk of, like, consciousness as being so self-aware? Um, and even, like, uh, as you were just talking about, Cat, uh, like, how uh, the, the story you were just telling, uh, like, the robots had, or AI had more, um, I guess, uh, emotion towards humans and humans had towards themselves. I was kind of curious. To how much of a slippery slope you think that is between consciousness and sentience? Because it would, to me, be awesome if uh, you had AI that could solve more problems and was empathetic towards humans. But you know what I'm saying? With how we treat each other, it's almost like that slippery slope of now this thing's going to make the whole world. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you think, uh, how should I say, in your model, do you think? that sentience one is a possibility, two is inevitable, or three is something that can be controlled if it continues I'm sorry, I can't hear very well the, the last part of the question. Oh, um, the, the question is, um, in your model, do you think that, that uh, sentience is inevitable, it can be controlled, or I forgot the last name, control, or 
something that, uh, yeah, just take it like that. Is, is sentience, or can, do you think in your mind, can sentience be a part of that? And if so, can you be controlled? There you go. Okay, uh, I'm not sure I fully understood, but uh, I catch that it was about the the complementarity between sentience and consciousness. Okay, so yeah, that's a very good uh, and deep question here. There were like recently a, a big uh, reaction on Twitter associated with uh, the publication in Neurons of a, a paper with like a culture of cells playing ping pong, uh, ping pong um, on a computer. And in the title, they were like uh, using the word sentience, and there were tons of debates about if it was like glamorous and sensationalistic to to use that word. Well, the the conclusion, as often in social media, is that people are not at all aligned on what they mean by sentience, um, and it's the same with consciousness. Actually, it's like one of the less well-defined word and. Well, uh, in my case, I would say that we can be very reasonable for consciousness in an operational way. So basically taking the, the example of the global neuronal workspace, <coughs> sorry, that consciousness can be in the context of a human agent, the ability to uh, report um, uh, a conscious um, representation of uh, something. Like uh, uh, this verbal report is more like a pragmatic access to the, the fact that the agent was conscious about something. So like uh, in, in this theory, we are talking about access consciousness. So the, the, the ability of the system to access uh, a form of information inside its own system. So then uh, what Katharina was adding to with the self and what we discussed with the other, you can have like a second layer and that is discussed very well in, in a science paper with Stanislas Delan, Okwan Lo and Sid Quitter, uh, like a, a second level about more metacognitive consciousness. Like a, I'm, uh, I'm conscious about my own state, not like, I just see an apple and I'm conscious of, about the apple, but uh, I know that I'm uh, perceiving the apple, like a, the kind of uh, meta consciousness. And so that's more like abstract and high level cognitive functions there. And I guess in my sense, sentience would be more like something grounded and embodied that is uh, speaking more to the, the ineffable feeling of being alive and being a, a physical body embodied in, a, in the real physical world. And so like a sentience would be more organic and, and more grounded, while consciousness would be more like a, something abstract and meta-informational uh, representation. So I don't know if it's clarify um, Kirko, but that would be a bit my take on this uh, huge question. Yeah, thank you so much. I think we went an hour and a half and we went through from 
you know, the, the experiments about your life <clears throat> and now about consciousness and sentience. So <laughs> I think <laughs> we covered really a lot. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah. And uh, so unless somebody has a last comment or question, uh, I'll wrap up. Okay. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for coming. This was a really interesting discussion and talk. Um, and thank you for answering our questions. Um, this was really wonderful. And I hope you come back one day. Uh, maybe talking about yeah. um, updates when you have, you know, uh, done more experiments. Um, mm -hmm. We would love to follow your work here in this club and uh, maybe next year you come back. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it was a real uh, good experience. Uh, I will follow the, the future uh, discussions also. Uh, I discovered Clubhouse today, so it's like uh, something very uh, interesting as a format. And uh, yeah, I will keep you updated uh, about like uh, the social dimensions and the uh, astrocytes and uh, the sentience consciousness uh, uh, complementary pair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you will solve. You will solve humanity. <laughs> I want to thank you as well, and uh, I definitely want to look deeper into your models and uh, and follow up yeah. with you. Don't hesitate to uh, contact me uh, uh, by email or Twitter. And uh, mm -hmm. if you need uh, anything for the running the models or so and deploying them, uh, more than happy to help. Great. You'll hear from me. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you. And thank you uh, thank very you. much. Yeah, this was so much, so interesting. And thank you everyone for coming, asking questions. Uh, we'll have a room tomorrow with Dr. Frank. He will talk about his um, articles and work. Um, the title is Intelligence as a Planetary Scale Process. Um, it will be a really interesting uh, discussion and talk, I think, tomorrow. So join us if you would like. And then next week we will have more um, guest speakers coming. So follow the club. And then I think you get notifications. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Uh, have a great night. Sorry for my coughing, but I'm still glad we made it. So <laughs> thank yeah. you. Get well soon and uh, you talk to you soon. Bye okay. everyone. Thank Bye, you very much. Bye everyone. Bye. Three, two, one. Bye.